and welcome to another episode of the Mostly Weather podcast. I'm Chloe Whittam, and today I'm joined by podcast regulars Neil Robinson Hello. and Doug McNeil. Hi there. And our special guest today is Jeff Norwood-Brown. Hello. Hi, hi Jeff. Thanks for joining us. Would you like to tell the listeners just a little bit about what you do? Yeah, I work in a, a department called Observational Based Research in the facilities section of that. I think you've had Phil Brown from the same department on in, in a previous podcast. And basically we're involved in developing and maintaining and calibrating the instruments on the research aircraft. Uh, more pertinent to this podcast, um, I did spend my early career in the Met Office as an observer at various outstations around the uh, UK and around the world, in fact. We should say that's an official job title rather than just someone who likes going around looking at the weather. Ooh, look at yeah. that. <laughs> cool clothes. Yeah. Super. So a sneak peek there, actually, as to what this podcast is going to be about. So we're, we're venturing into new territory uh, this time. We're going to have a three-part series. Um, and we're going to be looking at how a forecast works. So how do we put together a weather forecast and where does all that come from? And we're going to break that down into three components. So today, as Jeff has nicely introed for us, we're going to be looking at observations. So all things to do with observations. In part two, we're going to be coming on to looking at how we then use those. What do we do to generate a weather forecast? How do we make some of those decisions? How do the computers and things come in? And then in part three, we're going to go on to Perhaps the bit that you don't think about that often is how we actually tell people about the weather forecast. You know, once we've generated it, we need to let people know about what the weather is. Exactly. So make sure you stay tuned over the next three episodes. If anyone has any questions about anything they'd like us to answer in the forthcoming ones, do get in touch with us and we'll give you the details at the end of the podcast for that. Right then. So today, folks, observations. I'm going to start off with the simplest question of all. Hopefully this is scientific. It could be a bit philosophical. (laughs) What is an observation? Who's going to take a pitch? Oh, there's a few scratching of heads. I'm tempted to go down the Schrodinger's cat. Uh, Let's leave quantum physics to one side. I think we'll leave. Let's not start there anyway. Uh, Okay, okay. we're going to... to Look at something in the atmosphere or the, or the Earth system, and we're going to write it down. I reckon that you have to do both of those things in order for it to be yeah. an observation. I mean, the point is, right, in order to forecast the weather into the future, it's really, really important that we know as well as we can tell what the weather is right now, you know? And then once we know what the weather is right now, we'll talk about this in the next episode, but then we can use our forecasting computer model and our supercomputer to sort of wind time forward and see what the weather is going to be like in a couple of days. But the better we can know weather right now, the better we can tell the weather in the future. Exactly. So our observation is about, as Doug says, looking at things, measuring them. I think that might be the key. We've got to measure it, (laughs) probably. Uh, And and we need to note it down in some way. It's about creating data. I was going to say, yeah, recording it is is one of the key issues because if you know what happened yesterday and you know what's happening today then it gives you a good uh, idea of what might be happening tomorrow. That's it for sure. And I think that's the real key. So early days, if we wind things back, the simplest observation was just a man going outside and looking at what the weather was doing now. And I know it was a man. <laughs> I'm fairly clear about it's this. It's because he was getting, getting struck by lightning, right? If yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's it. It. We used to call it the Mark 1 eyeball. Mark. 
That's brilliant. And, and you know, any of us could be observers. If we all go outside right now uh, and you look at what the weather's doing now, I think most people could take a good guess of what the weather's going to do in about an hour's time mm. because you can see what it's happening now. So we talk about persistence forecasts, don't we? And that, you know, there, There's a certain amount of skill in that. If it's cloudy now, you can take a good punt on it. It might be cloudy in an hour's yeah. time from and now. And if, if you want to know that your forecast's any good, then you have to do better than a persistence forecast. Yeah, right, right? exactly. To, to add value, right? Yeah. So, Jeff, can you tell us about this most sort of fundamental type of weather measurement, which is being a weather observer, what kind of stuff do you have to do if you work as a weather observer for the Met Office? It was literally going outside and staring at the sky yeah. every hour and then reporting back um, in quite a, quite a clinical way. Yeah. It's, it's, it's quite... Um, I mean, the, the code was developed for early computers, so it's all, all numberized. But for imi- uh, if you can imagine, there's something like 99 different types of weather that you could report in this code or anything up to 40 different types of cloud so what kind of things would you be reporting back would you say would you be measuring temperature with a thermometer i mean is that something a weather observer does or would you be looking at cloud cover or cloud type Despite my age, even 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 in my day, uh, that was all automatic. So that would be done um, by you know sensors, um, uh, uh, PRTs, and what have you. What's uh, a PLT? Just uh, for everybody's benefit. Platinum resistance thermometer. Oh, okay. So, yeah. so a posh thermometer. A posh, a posh thermometer. thermometer. Yeah, <laughs> an electric thermometer. Um, but as the observer, you would go out and you would add value by saying what the visibility is. I mean, uh, we do have visiometers that, that would measure visibility, but your your Mark One eyeball would be much better at, 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 at guesstimating what. So is visibility to do with things like how far can I see? You would literally report, I can reckon I can see two miles from here. You literally have a panoramic image in the in the outstation, yeah. um, and I'll go on to explain outstations in a little while, um, but you'd have a panoramic image of, of what you could see at any and on a good day and you would uh, have uh, indications on each of these, uh, say, hills or trees or, or you know, clumps of whatever. Um, telling you the distance, so you would estimate from that. So you have local you area see. knowledge, basically about how exactly, far the, yeah, how far you can actually. So, see. do you also have to measure cloud cover? There's this thing that I, I did when I first got to the Met Office. Everybody does a, a very brief weather course, and there's something about measuring octaves of, of cloud. Yeah, I did eight weeks of that, um, <laughs> and so you you have to learn every single cloud type. So tell us about octaves of cloud. Well, it's it's eights of cloud, so it's cloud cover. So you have to divide the sky up into into uh, eight. Sectors and then, oct, right? yeah, yeah. yeah, and then and then estimate how much, how many of those eighths are covered. So why do we do eighths? As, far, as I understand it, it's just because when you look straight ahead, your field of view is just about an eighth of the sky. I think it's, it's just it's just a, an easy factor. Yeah. You know, it's got a, it's got a, you know, it's easy to divide up. Yeah. You know, and you start getting into twelfths or sixteenths or, or whatever. You know, it starts to get a bit complicated yeah. then, for the you know, so, well, yeah. for a human. Yeah, yeah. But of course, nowadays we also have um, uh, um, cloud-based recorders and things like that. Yeah. You know, but uh, but they only measure immediately above them, whereas the observer can not only see the cloud and the cloud type, but you you do get very good at estimating the height of the clouds as That's well, based on on their type. Um, and also the the type of the cloud tells you you know what's going on mm. in the atmosphere as well, whether it's stratus or cumulus or, or you know, and that's normally very useful for pilots. 
that's that's the main sort of uh, thing that the observers. So doing. that's that's interesting. So the sort of the Mark One eyeball, people might be thinking, well, obviously technology's moved on. Yeah. Do we need men, women sat out in fields looking at well, the sky? Well, we have we have things like runway centric fog. You know that right. th- this is fog that just sits over runways, no matter where we build them. You know. <laughs> so, uh, so I mean, and, and if the visiometer isn't in that fog, then it's yeah. saying it's it's crystal clear, and yet you can see that you know there's no way a pilot could land on that. Airfield, so that's where you come in. So your visiometer is pointing in one direction. Well, no, it's looking at a, a sort of like a rugby ball-sized um, uh, area uh, of, of the atmos- uh, of atmosphere. You know, about uh, two meters off the ground, and that's all it's looking at. So it's got two detectors pointing each other. It's got right a strobe light in, in one and uh, and a detector in the other end. So it measures how much light it can see. It can see by scattering. Of, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a scattering image. Uh, yeah, uh, instruments. So, well. so it's very much a it's a point observation rather than the human can give you a. a three yeah. Three-dimensional look out over view the horizon and, many miles and, yeah, and, and see what's going on. So you mentioned runways and outstations. So have we have we got rid of people altogether from the equation? No, not at all. Uh, and they, they aren't. They are sort of uh, the observer is, is becoming a dying breed now. You know, but uh, but they, they can still give a lot of value. And a lot of air traffic controllers do this observing now, and they they produce what's called a METAR, which is a, a MET airfield reports. You know, so they they will be able to give the uh, information out to pilots about what the conditions are actually like at that airfield at that time. Whereas the TAF, which is the forecast, is is done by a forecaster. So it sounds like they're really useful in these sort of really specialised locations where, where you need very specific kind of local knowledge about the weather. Yeah, and the, the it's, good to, it's good to have local knowledge. And, uh, you know, I mean, the other thing is as well, you have to you have to learn how to do, you know, cloud-based recording or estimating the height of clouds mm. even at night. Oh, wow. Okay. So, um, so you can either use searchlights or you can use, um, you know, local towns and, and just see how much reflection you can see. But you do, you do become quite adept at it. You know, in the moon and that sort yeah, of thing. Yeah. yeah. The relative amount of craft in this then. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. And it's, it's something that stays with you. So even, even when I'm on the research aircraft, I can look down from the, from, and do a, you know, a weather observation and then feed that back to. So this is um, weather observers are one of hundreds of different ways we get weather observations for our forecast. So what are what are the other most common types of measurement that we use in the forecast? Should we start at the bottom and work up? Or I think we that's start, a good yeah, plan. I mean, I'm intrigued. You know, we've got rid of all these humans. Well, did well, we just ne- get rid of them? What did we replace so, them with? Yes. Yeah. So I guess Stevenson screens and individual. What's the Stevenson screen? So it's one of those white screens that it looks you like think a beehive. It looks like a beehive, but it's got instruments in it, right? Yeah. So it's worth saying when we measure temperature with a thermometer which you mentioned, Jeff, what we don't want to particularly be measuring is the temperature of the sunlight hitting hitting the ground, right? So if you just hold the thermometer outside your window in the sun, that's what you get. But actually, when we report air temperatures, these are temperatures in the shade. So we need a way of keeping the thermometer in the shade, but also letting the air circulate around it, because we don't just want a little bit of air that's, you know, a particular temperature next to the thermometer. And that's where these things called Stevenson screens come in. So these are th- uh, kind of boxes with slats in the side, that are designed to let the air in, but not the sunlight, basically. And that gives us temperature in the shade. It is referred to within the Met Office as screen temperature. Right. So, and it's, uh, you know, it's a set height and, uh, you know, all the boxes are exactly, you know, the same. And all the doors, even the door that you open, it always points north in the northern hemisphere. So you don't allow sunlight in when you're making the readings. That's That's a great little 
kind of trick of the trade, really. Which throws but you really when you important. go to the Falkland Islands, which is in the southern hemisphere, <laughs> <laughs> and you realise that the, the screen door faces south. So these are key parts of what we might call weather stations, right? Automated weather stations. Do but you, for that, I mean, you're talking about automated, but the Stevenson screen hasn't really changed in its design since it was kind of invented by Thomas Stevenson in, I don't know, the mid-1880s, or yeah. a bit earlier than that even. So it's quite incredible that that, you know, originally wooden box with slats... Okay, it might be plastic now, but it's still fundamentally the same piece of I mean, technology. If it ain't like. broke, don't fix it, right? Yeah, yeah. well, exactly. It, it does the job. It's been used for. Well, this is it. I mean, they, they still have mercury and glass thermometers in there, and you have you'll have two thermometers in, and one's a, a dry bulb and one's a wet bulb. What does that mean? So the bulb is is the little uh, uh, sphere at the end of the uh, that contains the mercury that then expands up to give you the, the bit reading. You stick in your mouth, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, we cover one in a piece of muslin and keep that wet um, at all times. And that, that is, is, is how we work out what the dew point is. So that's a different physical measurement, basically. It's measuring what the temperature is of something where there's water evaporating from exactly, it. Exactly, so yeah. It's pulling heat away. Yeah. yeah. So you, you, you will get uh, uh, you know, a screen temperature and then a dew point temperature mm-hmm. from these two mercury and glass thermometers. And, and you, as an observer, you would go out every day and reset these they have a small pin in them you know so when they get to their maximum the pin stays in place and then you would reset that so the dew point temperature is related to the wet bulb temperature because it's to do with the temperature that water evaporates or condenses right so we call, a, it, yeah. we call it the dew point because it's the temperature where dew forms exactly yeah so when the temperature gets down to that point that's when you're going to start to get condensation yeah. you know so, um, uh, so yeah. but of course these are all replaced by by say these prts now you know so they're still in the stevenson screen the stevenson screen's still there the wooden stevenson screen but they are now electric um so almost from a climate perspective having that kind of continuity um of, of instrumentation you know all the way back through um, to the 1880s and even even before is really important when it comes to measuring climate change. Mm. So that's you know so so the the more things that we can keep the same, including the, the location of the screens or recording what's going on around, if there are any changes or if um, uh, say if a town is encroaching on a screen, that kind of thing is really really important for our long term. So we definitely climate need monitoring. to talk about this at some point, right? There's all these different measurements and how do we compare them? And that's a, yeah. That's well, a we've huge... got some people we could bring in for that definitely who do that. But it's, it's very strict the way you did the measurements and the way the site yeah. was set up. Everything was regulated and you had to absolutely do it at the same time every day. And you know, so, so uh, a question then: How old do we think is the oldest observing site in the UK? Oh, oh, I know so this. <laughs> the Central England Temperature Series goes back an awfully long way. It depends what we're talking about, I guess, because there were sort of amateur weather observers, oh, weren't they? One, like, one in, is it at Oxford University? Is it that one? Yeah, so this is oh, continuous, yeah. the same site continuously. I've forgotten. I've forgotten. Is it 1649? Okay, now no, you might later, be being a little optimistic. I'm a bit optimistic, okay. But it's been in the news recently. Yeah, that might be why you yeah, thought that. Yeah, I, so, I didn't look this up. I, I, yeah, you go for it, Claire. No, that's fine. Um, so... Measurements have been taken daily at this site. It's called the Radcliffe Met Station, which you're right, is in Oxford, and it's, I think it's part of one of the university colleges now. Uh, and it's the UK's longest continuous weather station, and it's been taking daily measurements since January 1815. Okay, okay, yeah, that's pretty early. But as you say, every day at exactly the same time for 200 years. Yeah. That's quite impressive, really. What a record. Well, that's, that's probably Oxford undergraduates for you, you know. Then, you, know just, you can make them do things. Yeah. You can make them do things, <laughs> 
but providing a crucial record for, for climatology and, and all those other things. But yeah, as you say, other records go back much further than I th- that. I if think you're the combining different England temperatures, what I think, uh, what was it? I was thinking of going yeah. back further than that. But that, that's a combination of different. Uh, yeah. So I mean, I think people like I guess monks and people like that have been taking measurements of the, this kind of thing for an awful long time. But yeah, continuous yeah. weather. Particularly British ones, I guess. We with this obsession with the weather, definitely. That's an incredibly long time to be every single day come well come rain or shine. measuring. So we've talked about these Met stations measuring temperature um, and different kinds of temperature. What else? What else do we measure at Met stations? And wind direction, presumably. Precipitation, so rainfall. So how do we measure these things? Well, well. I mean, rain's quite <laughs> rain's quite a nice one because it obviously it just you need it to fall into to some sort of container for which you're either measuring you know a certain a, a quantity or a certain, so a certain volume or a certain mass. Yeah, so the easiest way through. the easiest way is you have a tub and you see how much rains in the tub. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and then you can automate that with kind of tipping so, uh, floors, so a certain amount of water. When we talk about millimetres of rain, this is what we're referring to, right? It's a tub that's filled up with however many millimetres of that rain, yeah? And then, yeah, as you're saying, Claire, there's these things called um, tipping buckets now, which means when the tub gets to a certain uh, weight, it tips out and empties the water and starts again from fresh, but you've got an automated counter of how many times it's tipped. So that means that you don't need somebody to manually go and write down the uh, the level on the tub every day or whatever. But as a good observer, you would have the manual version as well, and you would have a, a glass jar buried into the ground with a with an aperture. I think it was something like five inches, five and a half inches, the the, the diameter of this aperture, and that was you know you measured the you know well the, the amount of rain that was in that jar. As a good scientist, I refuse to recognise imperial units now. <laughs> it's uh, with a tipping bucket. I think each bucket is 0.2 of a mil. Um, um, and that was, you know, one of one of the jobs was if it was given spurious reason uh, readings, you would have to go down as a, as the observer and maintain it and remove the family of snails that were living in there, <laughs> using it as a seesaw, you know. So, uh. so what about wind direction? Then these are measured with anemometers, right? Or is anemometer purely speed? No, it's wind speed and direction. So how what, how were they automated? I guess because you know, so people will probably probably have seen an anemometer before. So this is the kind of thing that's a wind vane, you know. So it changes to to point the direction the wind's going, and then you'll have cups on sticks which whiz round as the wind speed gets higher. But I mean, was that something that was automated? I can see how you could go and manually read how fast those things are going. Well, yeah, I mean, you, you have a handheld on an anemometer, which you would, uh, but the, then, you, you know, you wouldn't use that very often because you also have the, the automatic ones. And over the years, they, they've used various ways. Nowadays, it's all just electronic and uses yeah. resistors and, and, and what have you. Um, and it's just fed straight to a computer system. But uh, going back a few years, maybe uh, 10, 15 years, it, it was just basically the, the speed that the cups turned moved uh, a resisting pointer uh-huh. on, a, on a piece of clock work wound paper and you, you you ended up with a trace a pen would would record the trace of wind speed and direction you know so so, so nowadays we also have things called sonic anemometers right we do yeah so so these are things that effectively measure how fast sound travels between between a couple of probes and from doing that you can figure out how fast the air is moving which gives you this very precise uh very rapid measurement of, of wind speed and direction so I think my, you were talking about the paper there. I think my favourite observation has to be the sunlight yeah. hours one, which which is which we've got here in the in the library in a, in a little cupboard, which is a, a sort of glass sphere which concentrates sunlight onto a piece of paper and burns. Yeah. 
into the piece of paper. I just, so this, I just, yeah, yeah, I just love this is, that. This is called the Campbell Stokes recorder, and uh, this is uh, yeah, essentially a glass ball. It's like a you know crystal ball that sits in a in a, in a and, and no matter which way the sun shines it focuses the light so it's like an omnidirectional lens in effect it is it? exactly that yeah and and on on the back of the of the the cup of this uh, you have a, a a piece of paper that that's quite good at charring and it's um it's actually delineated you know so the, your job is again as the observer to go down and get this piece of paper and then count how long each of these burn marks were but the interesting thing is you're using the sunlight to write its own graph which is kind of graceful isn't it yeah it's not so much fun when you're down in the Falkland Islands and it's been raining all day and you're trying to get a soggy piece of paper out of it <laughs> in the pitch black. You know, so. so moving on from the human-based stuff, a lot of this stuff's now been automated, even the, the sun. Yeah, um, yeah, we use sun photometers and that yeah, sort of exactly. thing. Yeah, yeah. So we now have this enormous network of ground automated weather stations. That's right. So that's in the UK, I think we've got upwards of 270 stations possibly spread around the country uh, which I think are about 40 kilometer intervals so you get a nice representation I don't know how many observers we used to have did we used to have hundreds of people yeah I mean there was a number of us you know I mean even in 2002 when I started um, there there was quite a few I mean there were so many I can't tell you how many outstations there were but maybe getting on 40 or 50 outstations and each one of those had a couple of observers I mean as, as Jeff's already alluded to it's not just a case of measuring in the UK right the Met Office helps measure weather all over the world in fact you know we'll go on to see how many different kinds of observations there are but this is one of the sort of great stories of communication in, in science and technology and that countries all over the world collaborate to exchange these measurements many times a day so that everybody can benefit from having this total co- coverage of observations. That's it. And the World Meteorological Organization is a global centralizing body for all national met services. And they have lots of procedures and, you know, slightly tedious data standards and all of these kind of things. But it facilitates now this global sharing of information. Yeah, it's, it's nice to see something so positive that, that works really efficiently and is really useful. And, and that comes from the initial sort of data coding of the observer in the field and having to make all these complicated observations into sort of numbers and letters which now can all be transmitted electronically um, and here in the Met Office we can pick up observations from anywhere in the world as well as our own networks. So, so another kind of really useful weather measurement that people might have heard of before is what we might call weather balloons. So that you know what we call these in the trade as radio sons, yeah. So, Jeff, have you got much experience with radio sons? A lot, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So you've had to struggle with them in a gale bashing in your face as you're trying yeah. to release them out. Of- and and there are certain um, certain outstations where if you launch them during bad weather, everyone will come out and watch you. Yeah. <laughs> and even even one air traffic control tower, which will remain nameless, used to have um, scoreboards very much like Strictly Come Dancing <laughs> to give you. Marks out of ten for your launch. So tell us about radio sons. Can you describe what they are? I mean, yeah, a radio son these days is a, a, a polystyrene package covered in cardboard with a battery in it, and it measures pressure, temperature, humidity, wind speed, and direction. Um, basically, you attach that to a balloon. Um, uh, in, in my day, the balloons were filled with hydrogen, so you had to wear a flash mask and goggles and all that sort of thing. You know, there's no, there's no more fun than standing there at six o'clock in the morning with a bag of hydrogen banging off your head, you know, <laughs> in a stiff breeze. And then That's a great mental image. I've got you know with goggles and all the whole lot here going on. I still own them for some reason. I don't know why. It's personal use, really. Uh, yeah. Well, actually, I was called up. Funny enough, we were doing fog studies in Shropshire uh, uh, late last year, and, and they suddenly said, "Does anybody know how to?" Launch 
launch a radio song. <laughs> so I was shipped up to Shropshire to do uh, Standing at so, Midnight. So how, how big are the actual balloons? Um, well, I mean, there's, there's various sizes. The, the 100 gram ones that we used to use, uh, they would get to the size of, oh, it's difficult to say, probably a couple of foot across, you know, when they were filled with hydrogen. But we were told that once they got to the, the top of their flight, uh, they would be the size of a double-decker bus. Right. That's it, isn't it? So they start off quite small because of the pressure. Because and of then the pressure, they rise yeah. Up to and the as they rise, they, they expand. expand so if anybody's bigger. interested in this, they need to go back and listen to our Structure of the Atmosphere episode where we talk about this for... You know, 40 minutes. Yeah. So this is a really good example of this happening in real life. So when these balloons get higher up in the atmosphere, they, they grow to be bigger because the air pressure or the gas pressure, we should say, inside the balloon is big compared to that outside the balloon. Yeah. And um, also, just, just to uh, let you know, because we do release these over land, they also uh, have a small parachute on. So when the balloon eventually bursts, the uh, package doesn't come hurtling back down to uh, Earth again. It comes down on a small parachute. So do you know how many balloons are released every day? No. No. Uh, it's not as many as it used to be. I mean, right. we have an awful lot of automatic um, uh, weather balloons now. Really? That, yeah. So, uh, and they use um, helium. And I did ask, really, uh, why, why do they use helium and the humans use hydrogen? And the answer was given to me because these machines are quite expensive to replace, which was a bit... <laughs> Oh, well, the implication being that humans yeah. aren't. Oh, humans okay, are really okay. easy to replace. Maybe humans are more careful. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I did find some numbers, so this might answer Neil's question. I'm not sure, but there are probably around about 93 radio song stations in Europe, and there might be somewhere between six to 800 globally. It's a bit difficult with these things because the numbers change. That's interesting. So, and they're all releasing twice a day generally so to standardize all these observations this is one of the key things for meteorology so you'd be trying to get an observation at uh, zero and at 12 utc so this is sort of the standard time so if we talk about greenwich mean time basically so so if i was in malaysia or something i would release still on utc at zero and 12 or would they release at local zero and 12 no so they're releasing on standard utc so you go to somewhere like the singapore met service for example and they're actually releasing it at you know mid-afternoon which feels a little bit strange when you're thinking just to reiterate that utc is the same as greenwich mean time it's called universal time constant thank you (laughs) (laughs) yes but if you're doing that that must introduce interesting biases so uh into 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 the observations Right. So, um, for example, we'll talk about satellites. There, there are some satellites which are polar orbiters, which which orbit sort of over the poles and they go over the same place on the Earth at the same local time every day. And, and, and that's one of these standardization things. But it sounds like, I mean, you're still releasing at the same time, but that's going to introduce some kind of interesting well, it's bias. De- it's definitely something to... to- consider yeah it? absolutely yeah it doesn't it doesn't invalidate but it the you other thing is as well i mean you, operationally you could launch these balloons every two hours or even you know more frequently than that um i used to work on salisbury plane with the military and uh they needed to know the wind speed and direction uh, going up through the atmosphere so here's my first question i've got a few questions <laughs> to ask oh. <laughs> here's my first question why did the military need to know the wind speed and direction you know and i'm talking about the army here is this for missiles? Artillery? Yeah, <laughs> shells. Shells, yeah. Because the average shell from, uh, and I have to get this term right now, from a self-propelled gun, not a tank, from a self-propelled <laughs> gun, goes up to about 20 kilometres, and they need to know the wind speed and direction for that whole parabola. That I'm it- pretty sure. Do you know what else they need to know, interestingly, over that range? Think about something moving... Humidity? Over, no, not something moving across the Earth. The uh, globe. Uh, 
Coriolis. Ah, of course. Okay. Yeah, well, which direction they're firing in? I, I, my, I stand to be corrected here, but I remember hearing at university stories about naval ships calibrating their guns in the northern hemisphere and going to the southern hemisphere and finding that they missed because the Coriolis had been had been automatically calibrated. So, if anybody uh, is in the military out there, in the uh, maybe in the artillery, if you, could, if you could, any of our listeners could uh, could could write in. I mean, you see, you see as well in films. I mean, this is my only experience of sniping. Basically, <laughs> in films, you can see snipers. They they have to measure the the wind right and adjust their sights accordingly to take account for this kind of thing. Yeah, but I've also heard that someone used that excuse, the Coriolis effect, uh, for his terrible score at ten pin bowling. Because <laughs> 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 we were playing in the southern hemisphere. So, anyway. so here's my second. <laughs> here's my second question. Um, how do you measure wind speed and direction using a weather balloon? Yeah, I was going to bring this up, so I think this is really interesting. Uh, do you have a GPS tracker on it? These days you have a GPS tracker, and it's just based on where it is now compared to where it was a few seconds ago. Okay, you know? okay. Yeah, the, point being, the point being guess. the balloon gets blown around by the wind, yeah. and you yeah. just see how far it gets blown. Yeah. But, it, but I guess if you didn't used to have that track up through... Well, you, you didn't know. used to have GPS, so how was it done before GPS? Um, I, oh, I was going to say. <laughs> well, before, before GPS, we had a system called LORAN, which was radio transmitters based yeah. strategically around Europe and the, and the globe. And they would uh, triangulate themselves and then relay that in, information back. Oh, that's interesting. Now, prior to the LORAN, how did you do it? And I think uh, Doug's already alluded to this. You know, or someone did anyway. Just, is that I believe you, had you a look at it until it goes into the clouds, <laughs> yeah. and you use a theodolite. You know, really. So tell us about theodolites. So I can't. <laughs> but yeah, you would just 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 follow it for as long as you could, and that would work it out. Prior to balloons, how did you work the wind speed and looking at the clouds? You didn't. Yeah. <laughs> what you did is you got a gun <laughs> and a piece of corrugated iron, and you constructed a shack. And you poke the gun out through the top of the shack and you fired the gun at increasing angles until the bullet was blown back and hit the top of the shack. Really? And there was a oh. chap called Lewis Fry Richardson. Richardson. He's come up before. And just to prove that I'm not making it up, there is a picture of him in his shack. That's no. brilliant. <laughs> That's so, incredible. So the corrugated iron is so that you can hear so it you hit can the hear top. It, yeah. That's okay. the sounding board. This picture is literally it's it's sort of a wooden frame and on the top. So it's not it's not like a corrugated shed. This is just a wooden frame with a piece of corrugated metal horizontally lying on the top. And through the middle of it, there is a rifle pointing upwards, <laughs> and two men wearing hats and suits, yes. <laughs> as you would do as a scientist back in those days, um, s- stood underneath looking very studious. <gasps> That's unbelievable. I, yeah, I had no idea. Gosh, things have moved on a bit since then. I never got a gun as an observer. <laughs> <laughs> Well, this is like, it, it's a bit like um, I've got some tree scientist friends, and they, they take observations with a shotgun. Um, they, what, they, they, they shoot the trees. They go and shoot the trees. Yeah, no, I'm not. I'm not even kidding. They go and shoot branches off trees and then measure the leaves in the branches. So, so it's a, really it's a standard piece. Still a stand. Yeah, right. Still a standard piece of scientific <laughs> equipment. A good shotgun. Excellent. Good. So, right. So, what about other measurements that are sort of um, what's the word? Local measurements. The one I can think of is the boys. Basically, is, is Argo floats and things. So, Doug, tell us about Argo Float. Yeah, yeah. So, the Argo Float. So, uh, well, I, this is one of the things I was going to bring up. Actually, you, you were talking about boys. I know that we've got um, a, a lot of boys off the southwestern approaches of the United Kingdom, haven't we? So, we've got marine observations. So, we've got light vessels um, and boys, which are 
pinging back information to the Met Office, and for a very specific reason, and 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 that reason was the 1987, the Great Storm of 1987, which some of you may remember. Do you remember that, Neil? Or are you too young? I'm too young. Oh, you too young. Okay, so I was I was a kid at the time. So I live out in the sticks, and uh, and um, October 1987, the storm came through and. Uh, 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 knocked out our electricity for six days, so we were eating toast over the fire. <laughs> you know, it, it was a, it was a, a really large event, and it, it looms large in the Met Office history. But one of the interesting things about this was that um, it wasn't very well forecast later on. It was well forecast earlier, apparently, but not so much later on as the storm approached. And that was because a lot of the observing ships, which were um, feeding back information to the Met Office had had got out of the way because they knew there was a storm That's coming. Really I understand. So what, this, this is what I understand. So anyway. to be clear, what you're saying is the Met Office issued a forecast there's going to be a big storm in a couple of days' time. All the ships said, well, I'm glad they forecast that. I'm going to go home. They went home, stopped measuring... Uh, because we should say that these ships would be doing something else, right? They, they would usually be a cargo ship or, or a fishing yeah, boat or a voluntary, something. Voluntary they would also happen to feed measurements back into the Met Office. They weren't, they weren't just forecasting ships that got scared is the point, right? Yeah, that's but, right. But once they went back and we missed those measurements, the forecast got worse again and we forecast the storm uh, more back, uh, you know, not as well. That's really interesting. So, so as a result, um, there are now more boys off the southwestern approaches of, of the UK, which are... So southwest being upwind of most of the storms. That's that right. That's where the storms are coming from. And uh, these are permanently moored buoys, right, Doug? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So and they're I, sort of floating weather stations, for want of a better, you know, expression, right? They're yeah. pretty big, actually. I think, aren't they? You know, they're a few tons in weight, and you know, a good few meters. Yeah, in they're height. not sort of buoys that with a, that your fishermen p- might put out. Yeah. We're talking. You can you can get onto these things and wander about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Solar powered, full of all the automated weather station equipment that we would have a permanent sites in the UK. Do we still have drifting boys? Do we still use those at all? So so from a climate point of view, these, these Argo boys that I was talking about, yeah, there's a really large um, operation to, to essentially cover the entire ocean and the ocean depth. So one of the things we'll talk about in a minute is, is satellites. You can't really see using satellites into the depths of the ocean. Um, it's not permeable to electromagnetic radiation. So, so describe right? an argo boy, what it looks like and what it measures and that kind of so thing. So it's, it's about as tall as me. Uh, it's yellow. Uh, it's got aerials sticking out the top and you chuck it over the sh- side of a ship uh, and it sinks. And as it sinks, it takes um, it takes various measurements. It takes temperature. It, it can tell the depth, can tell the salinity. Uh, and uh, it sinks to depth maybe 2,000 metres. Uh, and, you know, so a couple of kilometres down and then it'll, it'll move on the currents and it'll, it'll come back up and then it'll um, um, send all that information via satellite back, back to the... And, and much like the weather balloons, these float about with the currents as well. That's right. And so you, you get an idea of the current, and, but you get the entire history then of, of, of the temperature and uh, depth and salinity. So, so you mentioned that these are really useful records for climate because... The heat capacity, so the amount of heat energy that we can put into water is physically higher than it is in air. So knowing how much heat stored in the oceans is actually really important for budgeting for the total amount of heat in the, in the Earth's system. Yeah, that's but, right. Yeah. So mo- and most of the energy that's coming in from the sun is, it, is taken up by the, by the, by the water, by the oceans, because they're so huge and their heat capacity is so massive. So it's really important for climate change. It's worth monitoring. saying that, that these kind of measurements, though, as, as you said with the storm earlier, are, they're also useful for 
initializing weather forecasts. That's it, that's right. So I think that the Argo program particularly is is um, sort of that's a research project to put that into weather forecasts. Um, but it's going into the some of the longer term forecasts, some of the sort of monthly decadal forecasts that we're thinking about. That that'll be really super important for initializing those. And maybe mm. we'll talk about what initialization means. But yeah. uh, it's really having an understanding of what the system is doing right now. And I think a key point is being able to have an understanding of what's happening everywhere around the world. You know, we spent a lot of time talking about kind of uh, observers and stuff that's land-based, but actually, you know, huge proportion of the surface so, covers. So, so particularly uh, in the ocean, and not only can you not very often see under the surface, and there's a lot going on under the surface, but the Southern Ocean, there aren't many ships in the Southern Ocean. You know, there's ships travel well-known tracks, and uh, most of them in the Northern Hemisphere, where all the land is, right? So so having all these Argo floats out, for example, in the Southern Ocean is really important. So one thing that's worth mentioning that we haven't mentioned explicitly yet is that we also get measurements from commercial ships and airplanes, right, that are part of our sort of scheme to have a, a small detector installed on their ship or aircraft which then reports back and actually this is really useful because they tend to fly places or sail places where we don't necessarily have people observing anyway so that's another kind of source of observations we get for initializing our forecasts so that's a really good time to break and say that earlier this week we spoke to our helpful archivist Catherine ross who had a really interesting fact for us very much related to what we're talking about at the moment Hi, Catherine. It's great to have you back with us in the studio. Hello. What fascinating facts have you got for us this time? Well, as we're talking about observations, I thought I'd bring along some of our early observations that you might not think the Met Office would have done. There is actually an official scientific thing called a message in a bottle. (laughs) Brilliant. (laughs) Okay. these, These things look like they've been through bottles. Catherine's got some fantastic old... It's that, you know, at school when you used to fake old paper by putting tea uh, all over the, the, the paper, it looks like someone spilled their tea over this stuff, Catherine. Yeah, these are, I've brought two examples here of uh, actual original messages and bottles which have been folded up and gone out to sea. And I'll just hand them around if you'd like to have a look at them. Oh, look at this. Um, Very can, old school. <laughs> you, can, you can kind of see the, the salt staining and the, you know, they actually were folded up into a bottle about the size of a ginger beer bottle. Uh, corked up, chucked overboard. Um, and the actual basic idea was we wanted to track currents at sea. This is the 1860s, 1870s. You know, we're learning about the ocean currents and which are the fastest and slowest and that kind of thing. Um, so basically they would either write a message, which Doug's got, or actually type a message, which Claire's got. Um, and essentially it says, you know, I am... At this latitude and longitude, I'm going to here. I'm X number of days out from my port. And if found, please return to the Admiralty London, which is in about four different languages on the official forms. So it was most of the languages that might find this. Um, And then if they happened to turn up on a beach, then they were returned usually to the local governor who sent them back to the Admiralty. So this is great. I've got a a fairly small note, about A5 size maybe. It says beautiful flowery writing, which I I can't read it all, but I've got the, I can see the top. June the 2nd, 1862, and a latitude and longitude. And on board the ship, I can't read that. Eurydice, I think. (laughs) Lovely. That's fantastic. And so where was this found? So I believe that one turned up somewhere near the Seychelles. Um, yeah, it's noted Pern and Buco on the bottom, so that yeah, that makes a bit of sense. It might have gone out that way, but anyway. Um, this one I love because this is one of the 
informal versions but they could be used in exactly the same way as long as we knew where it went in the sea and where it was found um, and this has got a note on the back written by the captain which says and blessed with a crew of the most infernally ordinary old shells that ever trod a plank <laughs> he wasn't I, having a great week then no, no. <laughs> and he didn't sign it just in case somebody found it uh, like a sea dog insoles as yeah. well <laughs> yes so I, I'm holding a sort of a bigger A4 size bit of paper, which has got some handwriting, but mostly typed. And it seems this is what you were saying it's about having different one. languages, yeah. right? So whoever finds this paper is requested to forward it, forward it to the Secretary of the Admiralty, London, with a note of the time and place at which it is found. And then I guess it's got, what's this, French, Spanish... Swedish and German translations, it looks like? I think so. Some of them have Russian as well. It depends on the period and time. They did it for about 30 years. Um, And then you've also got the accompanying letter. That's the other thing with it. That was what was was sent back with it, basically saying this is where it was found, on what date. So this is dated 1866, November the 30th, 1866. And... um, it's a handwritten note, and I can't read the, uh, the flowery writing. <laughs> <laughs> Don't blame me. I'll have to see if I can. Um, British Consulate Pernambuco, and it says, I beg to transmit to you herewith a report from Her Majesty's ship Nassau, found in a bottle picked up by some fishermen, the ninth instant on the beach near Cape St Augustine, about 20 miles south of this port. So, so what were the bottles? They were literally like bottles? Yeah. Like um, beer bottles? Yeah, we've, we've managed to identify they looked a bit like kind of your, like your traditional ginger beer bottles, yeah. so kind of reasonably small, but literally a bottle with a cork in the end. <laughs> and these um, ships would be carrying these bottles deliberately. Yeah. It's not the, the rations that were being used <laughs> up, and they thought, oh, let's shove a note in a bottle and chuck it overboard. No, I mean, you know, examples where they're handwritten yeah they might have been thinking oh well let's just do one and see what happens um but you know the formal versions no they were they were deliberately sent out with kind of a pad of of paper to to send them overboard and a box of bottles to drop over the side but to be clear what what this was measuring was they knew where they dropped the bottle into the ocean they knew where it was found so that tells you that the bottles traveled from one place to another so these were the very first measurements of ocean currents these are very early measurements of ocean currents yes you know we've we had Examples sort of knowing a bit of an ocean current where a ship would be able to kind of sort of say, well, the current was travelling in this direction, the next day it was here kind of thing. But actually tracking Mm. a long distance Mm. in the same current hadn't been particularly done before. And if they knew quite close, it hadn't been on the beach that long, put it that way, then sometimes it gave them an idea of the speed of that current as well, which obviously was quite good for trade. Oh, of course, yeah. So if the fisherman's going down to the beach every day, one day this bottle turns up. It's there today. Yeah, exactly. So these, these examples are the mid nineteenth century. So w- w- was it a, a long period of time that, that we were doing this, or was it you know just a few decades? Or when did we stop? Few doing years? This? <laughs> when did we stop doing this? Yeah. Um, this sort of thing we did for about thirty years or so, um, but we didn't really stop altogether. Um, in, in that you've got examples into the nineteen tens. Um, where we're doing a similar sort of idea, but a different sort of bottle. They were actually tracking uh, seabed currents. So it was a slightly more specialised bottle, which was designed to drop to the seabed and then resurface. Um, so they sort of got the hang of the, of the sea surface currents, and then they started moving on to seabed currents. I mean, this, that sounds very similar to a, a, a modern observation, the Argo float, where so there's about... To two and a half thousand floats, which we drop over the side of uh, ships these days, and they sink to the bottom, but they come back up again, uh, and then they send their information back via satellite. So it's it's, it's a kind of early version. It's of, kind of an ancestor, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I think we've that talked before idea. as well about the, an incident with um, rubber duckies that fell over the side of a yeah. uh, it fell over the side of a cargo ship, and the same. You know, this was a modern equivalent of the. Um, of their bottle experiments, you know, when people found these rubber duckies, they were encouraged to report where they found them. 
yeah, that flotilla of ducks went halfway around the world, yeah. I think. <laughs> so if people are interested in finding out a bit more about these messages in the bottle, uh, do we have them in the archive? Can people come yeah, and see we them? Have, we have a reasonable selection in the archive. Obviously, thousands would have been thrown overboard, but only a reasonably small handful were ever rediscovered. I think they could still turn up to this day. One turned up about 10 years ago. Um, oh, really? Yeah. OK, so they're still <laughs> they appearing. Can, they, they do still appear very occasionally. Um, but yeah, we have them in the archive. You can come and see them. And these examples I'll scan and we can put on the blog post. That's perfect. Well, thank you, Catherine. That's fascinating. Yeah, okay. You're welcome. Good historical setting for the rest of our discussion. Well, then, moving on from really historical records to the cutting edge, we've talked about satellites briefly, but let's really take a focus. So, Doug, you've brought them up. What do we use satellites for these days? So this is really for getting a, a really good overview of the system. So you can get a huge amount of information from satellites. So, so we've got some um, uh, geostationary satellites sitting high above the Earth. So they're about 36,000 kilometres, I think. So, um, And they're, they're, they're locked in. So they're geostationary, which means that their orbit is timed so that it orbits at exactly the same speed as the Earth is rotating underneath them so that they're staying in the same position. Yeah, so uh, the geostationary stuff just works that depending on how far away from the Earth's surface you are, you travel over the Earth's surface at a different speed, right? And if you're lower down, you're traveling faster than the Earth's surface. And if you're higher up, you're traveling slower. Have I got that the right way around? And it's somewhere right in the middle. It's either that way around or the other way around. And somewhere right in the middle is a sweet spot where you just happen to travel at exactly the same speed that the Earth's rotating, right? That's so right. This, so you always see the same, you see the same position only. So, so if I put it above my house, it stays there, right? And, and so these geostationary satellites just are all at the same altitude. They're all at the same altitude. They're all on, I think, are they all over the... Um, on the equator. On the equator mm. as well. So I, so I think these things, you've got to be a bit careful that you don't go and wipe out a bunch of satellites, is my understanding. If you get the orbits wrong... They're all, you know, there's only a certain number of slots, and you don't want them taking out all the rest of the satellites if, if you get the orbits wrong. But it, uh, um, so that's providing information on. Well, Jeff, you, you know most about this about um, uh, about cloud uh, and. Um, so they essentially, they essentially have just got cameras on, right? They take photos, but they just take really clever photos. Well, no, that's that's not the case at all. Do, just out of interest, do you know uh, who came up with the uh, geostationary satellites? Uh, yes, I do. It's um, Arthur C. Clarke. Arthur C. Clarke yeah, was the guy who came up with the concept of the geostationary really? satellite. So yeah. he's the sci-fi author. He's the sci-fi author, yeah. yeah. So, um, but no, I mean, satellites, yes, they do take imagery, but they take imagery at so many different wavelengths. Um, it's not just your standard photograph, you know. Um, so, I mean, we've got the visible imagery, so that's the ones we're fairly familiar with. And then we've got infrared imagery, so we can work out um, based on the temperature of the clouds, say, that we're looking at, um, we can work out the, the uh, cloud height uh, just from looking at a, a single image. But then we have, you know, uh, microwave radiometers built into satellites, which can tell you stuff about. So if you imagine that um, your, your household microwave uh, basically agitates water molecules and that causes friction and that's how you heat your food. But the water molecules in the atmosphere also vibrate and give off microwaves. And this is what we can detect. And using that information, we can work out, well, many various things of the atmosphere, how much water vapor is in there, what the temperature is. And you can get you can get the structure, can't you, as well? You can exactly, you can get the structure. 
so yeah, if, you, if you're looking at different sorts of microwave channels and, and you understand you know, what these are, are giving to you. So we should be clear that we're detecting the microwave we radiation that's coming off. We're not, off. Beaming, we're not beaming down <laughs> <laughs> microwave radiation. So all this stuff falls under the banner of remote sensing, right? And the interesting thing about remote sensing is it gives you really wide coverage compared to these point measurements that we were talking about earlier. Um, but you have to play some really interesting games to do things like figure out the depth of how far you're looking because you're, you're essentially you're making a real 3D field of data. Yeah, and also, I mean, at the edge of your field of view, you know, you'll be looking through atmosphere at an angle, right? Mm-hmm. Rather, you're looking directly down from from above. But so you have to take that into account. Well, as well. one of my favourite applications from uh, satellites, which I think it's still in its its, its early years at the moment, is uh, looking at wave height and direction mm-hmm. and uh, sun glint off those waves and working out the wind speed at the surface. Scatterometers, you know, is that exa- right? That's yeah, exactly yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. So that's uh, so that's very cool. So over these massive oceans where we don't have much in the way of ships and buys, we can actually use satellites infer, to yeah, determine. What the conditions are down it's worth there. saying that satellites were a complete game changer in weather forecasting when they came in sort of early 80s late 70s around then and and because of the we've got much much more information about what the current state of the weather is now the skill of forecast the quality of, our, of weather forecast went up significantly because of this I guess we spent most of the podcast talking about what are our different types of observations we haven't really covered how we use them and the fundamental thing, as Neil said, is we're using them because we want to understand the state of the atmosphere now, because with the best understanding of the state of the atmosphere now, we can do our best job at trying to forecast what's going to happen into the future. And yeah, the satellites have completely changed the game because now we can see the whole world, you know, every 10 minutes almost from some of the new satellites that are going up with lots of complicated processing, obviously, that happens. Are there any other kinds of measurements we want to check off before we finish our list? The only one I can think of is also remote sensing which is actually good old-fashioned radar i was gonna say that so i I was gonna have a question to you you know what's the main observation where actually the noise has become the signal (laughs) Uh, is this is this noise because of you know you've got the weather in the way of of detecting planes exactly yeah yeah so radar developed sort of during the second world war they're trying to detect you know, foreign aircraft and ships and things, and and the rain was getting in the way, effectively. One person's noise is another man's signal, right? And then, yeah. That's it, exactly. That's interesting. So, you know, this what we would think about as a very routine set of observations now. People look at radar data uh, when they're planning, you know, what they're going to do in the next hour or something has actually come again from one of these military applications, effectively. Does anybody know how many weather observations are taken every day. Oh, so I, I, I saw this and I was trying to work out, okay, so it's a large number. It's a very, very large number. It's a number. very, very large number. Now, how, how is it, okay, that, that's, that's getting big. <laughs> steady. <laughs> how does it, steady. So how are, these, how are these defined? Is it, yeah. Well, I don't know. So I is looked this, at the... Is this the sort of individual pieces of data coming back? Is this, you know, grid boxes? Or, yeah. you know, we're going to find this out. I looked at the World Meteorological Organization's website and they've got a whole bunch of numbers about how many different types of things there are. So okay. I will bore you all by running that's through. Right, no, that's good. It's so good. they say that there are 10,000 manned and automatic surface weather stations okay, that's good. globally. There are 1,000 upper air stations, which is a few more than I said earlier. 7,000 ships. So that's, you know, uh, commercial as well as potentially dedicated observing ones. 100 moored boys, 1,000 drifting boys. But, Doug, as you said earlier, I think it's probably more like two and a half, three thousand. Well, those possibly. are slightly different. Those are into climate stuff uh, rather okay. than the weather forecasting. So, so maybe, maybe these are weather ones. Hundreds of weather radars. 
radar and about 3,000 commercial aircraft, which we touched on, that are beaming back their um, data about with wind speeds and their altitudes and things like that. So that's approximately 22,500 observation sites globally. And that's just sites, let alone observation. Feeding so. data in potentially every minute from some of these automated stations. And then you've got the satellites on top. Exactly. So I've got a number here, which is an estimate that there are 17 million weather observations every day globally. Wow. I saw something that took it up to 30. Yeah. But how do you quantify this? Let's yeah. say it's order of magnitude. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so there was a real potential. I was looking earlier um, at our website, the Met Office website, and there's one thing which I think is, is really good where people can get involved and perhaps listeners can get involved, which is the Weather Observations website, which is WOW, which is taking... <laughs> wow. Doug's not which really is, impressed. That's the acronym, yeah. just to be clear. Yeah, it's pretty impressive, though. Yeah. And, and, and this website is taking uh, observations from people uh, and you and there's from no the from the back garden that um there's lots of people now who have who you can go out and buy a, a weather station or you can just take pictures and feed those in you can take observations and feed those into uh, so it's a kind of social media way of doing things but you can definitely help you can help us you can uh, help with the forecast by by providing an observation can i just just point out seriously we don't want people going out with shotguns and tin roofs don't try that at home People. But what do we want? I mean, do, do we want people uh, uh, buying um, weather observation sites? Or, uh, you know, I guess we're moving to the point where your phone is going to become yeah, a weather, uh, weather observation. That's a big thing that we're interested in exploring is we're, we're walking around with these amazingly accurate instruments in our pockets now. And a high resolution photograph of the sky has actually got really useful information in it about uh, wavelength that's been filtered out and clouds uh, properties. You can, you can infer loads of useful things from it. I think the really interesting thing about weather observations and something which I think we'll probably tackle at the beginning of the next episode in this series is imagine starting the weather forecast. You've got all these weather observations from satellites, from weather observers, from people's back gardens, from boys. How on earth are we going to standardise these into something where all these observations are comparable with each other? And that's a huge part of making a weather forecast, right? I think you're going to need a really big computer. Yeah, well, luckily, (laughs) we've got one. And I think we're going to need at least another 40 minutes to discuss that. So that's a great setup. We've covered observations today. Next time round, we're going to be looking at how do we use these observations, how do we feed them into the, the forecasting process, how do we use the models. And then, as we said at the start, we're going to have a third episode, which is going to look at then how do we communicate that forecast, how do we make those decisions, how do other people make those decisions based on it. So if you've got any questions for those next couple of episodes, you should send them to us and we'll try and fold them into what we're going to talk about. So if you've got any emails, send them to... Mostlyweather at metoffice.gov.uk And you can tweet me on Neil, N-I-A-L-L, that's Neil H. Robinson. And you can tweet me at Doug McNeil. (laughs) How's how's McNeil spelled this time? D-O-U-G-M-C-N-E-A-L-L. And I'm on Twitter at Claire S. Whittam, and you'll just have to look up how to spell my name. I'm <laughs> <laughs> doing this every week. Uh, thank you very much for listening. Thank you to Jeff yeah, for being yeah. an oh, excellent guest. Lots of information there. We'll get you back, Jeff, I think, to talk about some other things in the future. Um, apologies that this podcast has come out a little bit behind schedule, but we're back on track, and the next one should be out on about the same schedule as normal. If you've got any comments, if you'd like to leave us a review on iTunes, that would be fantastic. Um, we're very open to having any questions and we look forward to talking to you all again next week as part two of this series 
Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Goodbye. Bye.